And there came a day. A day unlike... Wait. No, that's been done. Hmm. Who knows what evil lurks in... No, that is that other thing. What has yellow skin and rights? Ah, forget it. You're listening to Panelology. Excelsior, oh, damn it. Welcome to episode 263 of Panelology. I'm Alex. And I am Brian. How are you doing this week? I'm all right. Hopefully uh, hopefully everyone can hear. I decided after five years to uh, get some real audio equipment, so uh, maybe I sound a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> I can uh, guarantee from the audio test you recorded earlier this week, it is a massive improvement. Excellent. Excellent. So, uh... Yeah, I have little to show for this week. I had more dental work done. Okay. Um, yay. And uh started finally bagging and boarding the I'm gonna guess probably six to seven hundred comics I have piled up in my office and bedroom now. Oh good lord. Yeah, I got through the X books everything since thanks to those little uh uh lists in the back of what to read in which order. September second, twenty twenty. Wow. No, unfortunately, bagging and boarding, I'm, I'm I'm completely up to date on that. Yeah, I uh, well, I briefly had a quarantine roommate who, my yeah. office is my guest room, so I kind of just sort of let things, because it sort of takes over the whole office when yeah. I bag no, and board. I 100% understand that, yeah. So I kind of just threw a card table in my bedroom and just started, like, setting stacks of things to keep them out of the way in the guest room and uh it is time to pay the piper before theater work begins again and i suddenly end up with 18 months of comics sitting dusty all over my house oh that's a chore yeah it's rewarding though it is i'm gonna like i'm down to like eight stacks i think i'm gonna like one or two stacks a week for the next month or so that sounds healthy yeah, like go through by the DC stuff, then the Marvel stuff, then all my third party stuff, and try to keep the new things that are coming out caught up as I finish each grouping. Yeah, yeah. My problem is I need more boxes, and I have no room to put more boxes. Well, that's the other problem is I've got to start going through the closet downstairs with some of the decade old stuff and figuring out what does Alex keep, what does Alex part with, mm. which uh, I've never had to do before. On the one hand, I expect it to be kind of cathartic, rewarding. On the other hand, no, at this point, I need the closet space. I really don't have any mental hang-ups on getting rid of some older stuff at this point. Got it. Yeah. Because I have learned, you know what I will never do, Brian? Go back and read those? I will never dig out physical floppies from their long boxes. I will always be like, eh, well, let me see if it's on Marvel Unlimited or DC Infinite or Comixology and then just buy it again. That's a very, very valid uh, and healthy, healthier than what I would deal with. Point <laughs> of view. Yes. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Well, I'm sure get to talk about that as that happens. That's going to be a little bit before I take on that piece of the project, though. There you go. There you go. 
Let's talk about comics, though. New Let's comics, not yeah. the old dusty comics filling my house. The ones that we need to bag and board, right? Yes. <laughs> Let's do it. Or debag and deboard and debox. Batman Urban Legends number three. We have the first of our mini series in this. Uh, multi-part stories in this has wrapped up this week. So I'm going to say let's start there. That is The Outsiders in The Caretaker, part three of three. This is written by Brandon Thomas, with art by Max Dunbar, colors by Luis Guerrero, and letters by Steve Wands. And I'm going to start with the little editorial box at the very end. The Outsiders will return this fall. Yeah, so obviously they're going to be getting their own book again, which is uh, very cool, especially with, uh, with with this new kind of setup and team, and I, I think it's going to be good. Yeah, and I, I, I mentioned that first because in that context, this definitely is sort of an opportunity in this three-part story to turn the page and set up a little bit of a new status quo, kind of have an ongoing mission hanging above the team yeah um katana has one year at the end of this to was it return return masio to his rightful place yeah i I don't know if we know exactly what that means yet but yeah i i don't think we do that was that was my hesitation there was like (laughs) wait am i blanking or do we not actually know where okay um we kind of get the sort of answer to is there something going on between katana and black lightning which is they both say no and she certainly believes the answer is no because she says no under the influence of truth serum but also like they're clearly very close and i think we're still gonna get a little will they won't they i it's almost one of those things where uh neither one of them will allow it to happen because they're teammates. Right. Yeah. They're both too responsible. Exactly. And both continually deny themselves happiness. Yeah. DC's uh, real big on this one year plan for things, aren't they right now with relationships? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We also have Metamorpho in here, who I know is classically an Outsiders member, Mm -hmm. but this is my first time seeing him on an Outsiders team. Oh, is it really? It is. I, I mean, that I realized that I I haven't read any of the older stuff, and he wasn't in the Brian Edward Hill run, which I think right. was the only Outsiders book that has happened in the last ten years before Future State and Infinite Frontier. I guess that's fair. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I've read Metamorpho in other books, but not as part of the team. And I like having him to sort of provide comic relief to sort of let some of that. We are very serious. Pressure off? Yeah. Don't get me wrong, I like the series, and I love that Brian Edward Hill run, but having having that character is always valuable to me. It is It is super, super obvious to me why uh, he was written in the Terrifics as the Ben Grimm character. Yeah. Right? Because, yeah, he serves the same point. He can be very, very serious if you need that character to be, or he can be the comic relief Poking at the other team members, yeah. And we learned that the three of them and Duke will be four of the five outsiders when they return. Yes. But we don't know who the fifth is. 
We don't, other than um, supposedly it will be something that will be very unusual for the team. Which brings me, Brian, to... <laughs> got any called guesses? Shot, called Shot Corner? Yeah. We should both go big or go home. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, I'm... I, uh, I kind of racked my brain. I honestly, I don't know who it could be. Because, um, I mean, there's some obvious old outsider characters but i feel like they're just not gonna do that um the one of the people that immediately popped to mind that would be interesting and i think this was just my own uh kind of wish fulfillment would have been uh, <clears throat> uh ravager rose right yeah but i don't think it's going to be that one because the the power set is too similar to katana who's already on the team Sure. Uh, the other is, I think she's going to get used in some other books. Uh, yeah, that would make not sense notably too. like probably Robin, right? Yeah. Um. So, plus it's not outside enough to justify that comment. So, somebody like Dead Man, maybe that would be very cool, right? I am sitting here thinking, who is the least outsiders character without? just saying no to membership on the team. And I have an answer. Okay. There's no way this is right. <laughs> because I think at a certain level, this character is too recognizable and high profile to be a member of this team. Mm -hmm. But just, just maybe enough on that line, that, like with a costume change, she could get away with it. Okay. Kara, put Supergirl on the Outsiders. Oh, wow. That would be a... Uh... That would be a huge change. But it would kind of fit with, like, the whole, you don't have taking care of Clark for her to do. John is positioned as the new Superman. Yeah. Like, yes, Tom King is sending her into the space and giving her swords, but by your arithmetic, we need someone maybe who can handle swords. This is true. Yeah, the 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 dead man. That I'll be honest, the reason that I went there was because things. the world needs more dead man. Always. Well, I mean, obviously that. The other thing is, I mean, obviously he's, he's such an unusual character and power set that it's a very different call. And the idea of dealing with souls like Maceo and the sword and all of that seems like it may fit in with that power set. Yeah, no, I I love yeah. the dead man idea. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I'm just imagining Supergirl on the Outsiders. Yeah, that I mean, don't get me wrong, that would be a very, very <laughs> cool and different take. And traditionally the the Outsiders have not had that kind of power either. Right. That's why I think it would like mix things up some. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. Yeah. Um another fun pick would be like Blue Devil. But again, I always want more Blue Devil. I mean, you know, we could get an Etrigan uh detective chimp, right? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's talk about some of the other stuff in this book. Uh, speaking of Outsiders Adjacent, Lady Shiva in Death Wish. This is written by Che Grayson. Art is by Alberto Jimenez Albuquerque. Colors are by David Barron. And letters are by Tom Napolitano. Uh, this is actually very much a coda for, for Lady Shiva to that same Outsiders run. Yes, Brian absolutely. Edward Hill. Absolutely. It's also a side of Lady Shiva I feel like we don't see often. I would agree with that. And I think we probably saw it more in that Outsiders run than we typically do other places also. Mm -hmm. And that is that 
it's so easy to portray her as and Talia is the same way, right? As as the 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 evil assassin, essentially. Right. Right. Her even more so than Talia. Um and there's clearly much, much more you know, certainly that could be explored with this character, and I think that has in the past that that provides enough depth to this character that this is far more interesting to me. I agree. I also like this idea of kind of both torn down a little bit, her and Batman being there for each other in a weird way. <laughs> like, well, it, it very. what happened? They find a common ground, right? Yeah. 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 And that is, you know, especially Lady Shiva is, it, the idea is that without Cassie, what else does she have? Like literally she kind of made her whole life into making Cassie. Yeah. And so when she feels like Batman took her away, then what did that leave her? Right. Yeah. And obviously we, we all know well the idea of Batman feeling the loss of his protégés. It's one of the rare times, I think, where we see Bruce Wayne being sort of a voice of reason with mental health, uh, basically saying, look, they are happy. They are doing this thing without either of us. And it's okay to let them have full lives of their own. Who are you? And what have you done with that kid whose origin story we've seen <laughs> 7,000 times? Well, and I, I, it's one of those things that I think Nightwing, and specifically, has had to beat into him over and over and over again, <laughs> right? In some cases, literally. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. You will let us grow up, whiff. You will let us grow up, pow. You will let us grow up, bam. Exactly. Uh, there's a real Batman Peter Pan thing in there somewhere, isn't there? Something like that, yes. Let's talk about Grifter in the Long Con, part oh my God. three of five. I, I love this Grifter story. Written by Matthew Rosenberg, art by Ryan Benjamin, colors by Antonio Fabella, and letters by Saida Timofante. I agree. Brian, this is amazing. I need a grifter ongoing from this team. And we we maybe learn in this issue what the long con is. Yes, we do. Um or we at least we think we probably do, right? We seem to. Yes. Uh, by the way, I, I don't know who is the voice in his head, but whoever it is, I ab that, that that's my favorite character in this story, I think. <laughs> the 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 voice in Grifter's ear. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh huh. I really do wonder who that is because there's a part of me that's like, surely it's not the same person who Jace Fox talks to, right? That would well, be, that would be unlikely. Yeah. But the, but the, oh yeah, that especially given yes, given the actions, I I can't imagine it's the same person. <laughs> but the idea of well, you're the one that told me to sleep with her. No, I told you to clone her computer. You sleeping in her, there was that grifter going the extra mile. <laughs> the extra grifter difference or something. I don't know. It was beautiful. Yeah. I loved it. So it would seem that Cole Cash, maybe mistaken for being his dead brother, has been recruited by an organization that wants to infiltrate Fox Tech for some reason. Yes. And we still don't know what that reason is. I assume this is the same halo that Batman growled at Grifter about back in, I don't know, Batman number 
103 or whatever something yeah um i imagine that it's the same it's all connected uh but god he's just such a i i know i keep using this dirtbag hawkeye comparison mm-hmm. but i just don't have any better more accurate descriptor and i love it for, yeah, for I, that yeah i do too i do too it, it, it wonderful character to read and finally, we'll just touch on it because it's fantastic, but there's not necessarily a lot of new information here to talk about in it. Red Hood and Batman in Cheer, Part 3 of 6. Written by Chips Darsky, art by Eddie Barros and Aber Ferreira, Jesus Marino, and Marcus Toe. Colors by Adriano Lucas, and letters by Becca Carey. I will say probably the most important thing we learn in this book Maybe we we learn what maybe the most important compartment in Batman's utility belt is, <laughs> and, and and it's the second time this week that that, that that same thing had come up in in a Batman story, which I thought was very interesting. <laughs> yeah, yes, uh, yeah. Bat, Batman has an emergency uh, pouch in his utility belt for lollipops. Sometimes you just need a dum dum. Sometimes you need a dum dum. That's right. I love it. I love it. I do too. It's fantastic. It is. Uh, I'm just so thrilled with how Urban Legends is going. I, the other thing that I think I uh, that I did pick up on this that I liked was there's a point where Jason Todd says something about, um, I, you know, I know I've disappointed Batman to the point that I don't know that I could ever make him, you know, happy in my choices, but I don't want to let Barbara down. Yeah. I was like, ah, that's good. Moving on to DC Festival of Heroes, the Asian Superhero Celebration. Uh, I am not going to go through all of these because there are a lot of stories. This is a chunky book. I will say, though, like, very generally, we've gotten a lot of these anthology collections, these one-shots. And they've all been pretty solid. I think this may be my favorite in recent memory. Uh, there is not a story in here that's not up to par with all the others. There are a lot of characters who I like, but who we don't see get a lot of play, uh, which is always like a highlight of these for me. And they're just well-written. The art is gorgeous. I'm going to po- point out a couple. I'm going to point out a couple that are my favorites, but boy, howdy, could I go through these one by one if that would not be terrible audio uh masks which is written by rom v with art by audrey mock colors by jordi belair and letters by tom napolitano i know everyone's very surprised to hear me mention something written by rom v yeah just i don't know why you would do that alex i know it's it's a real shock Uh, This is tying in specifically to his Catwoman run and focuses on the character who we see in Future State Catwoman, the Cheshire Cat, uh, as she's sort of figuring out putting on a mask and fighting back and doing those things for herself for the first time. And it's a really great version of Selina, who we see show up at the end, to kind of play that mentor role. We joke. I mean, I joked about Batman having a rare positive mental health take, but Selina coming in with a solid positive mental health take in a way that's very not Batman. Um, and saying, look, I've got this friend who uh, says, I wear a mask so you don't have to. 
But, like, we all wear them for one reason or another, and you're young, and it's fine to take time and figure out what the mask is for you and what you get from it. And it's very much about, like, setting up this character who's going to grow into something more, I think, over this run. Uh, Family Dinner is another one I really dug. It's written by Alyssa Wong, pencils are by Sean Chin, inks by Norm Ratmund, colors by Rain Barreto, and letters by Ariana Marr. This is about Grace Choi, uh, who is dating Anissa Pierce, meeting Anissa Pierce's father for the first time oh for boy. family dinner. And uh, Brian, yes, who is Anissa Pierce's father? Uh, that would be Jefferson Pierce. A.K.A. Black Lightning. Yeah. Also a delight, Jennifer is there for dinner too, just on her cell phone the entire time, which is hilarious <laughs> um grace has put off this meeting like two or three times already out of just she's super intimidated by meeting black lightning but also really wants black lightning to like her i i can't imagine why she would feel like this they immediately don't get along um jefferson sees her as just kind of too flippant and unfocused and is afraid she'll get Anissa killed. Uh, then Mammoth and Shimmer show up and crash dinner and they all fight together and like realize, okay, there's a reason why this works. And that is, I think, why I like this so much that the relationships in this are great. Uh, Grace and Anissa feel lived in and then that tension between Grace and Jefferson is really, really solid. Uh, and then the last one I want to talk about is called The Monkey Prince Hates Superheroes. I don't know. I would have guessed it was written by Colin Bunn with that title. I mean. <laughs> you would be wrong. This is written by Jean Lin Yang. Art is by Bernard Chang. Colors are by Sebastian Chang. And letters are by Janice Chang. Uh, this is a new character being introduced for the first time in this book. Based on a, a mythological character called The Monkey King. And maybe related to a Monkey King, we get a lot of teases about maybe what this character's background is without getting a lot of that information. Um, clearly some sort of adopted or foster parent situation. Uh, he has this mentor who is also sort of a folkloric figure, uh, this sort of giant long-eared pig rabbit on a cloud named Shifu Pigsy, uh, who, who makes allusions to your, your father, stop calling him my father, I wasn't raised by him. I'm imagining that's the, the Monkey King. Um, the Monkey Prince is this kid with some amount of shape-shifting ability, who, when he's using his powers and in control, takes on a monkey-like appearance. At the beginning of this story, uh, he is posing as Shazam, dealing with Dr. Savannah, who has been possessed by a cannibal spirit and wants to eat Shazam to gain his power. Wow. Uh, and very much this is sort of a, like, snarky almost sort of Deadpool, Harley Quinn, but without being so over-the-top kind of character. Very much like, I'm not here necessarily to be heroic. I'm here because I need to do what I need to do, and he does not like superheroes. Uh, this is reinforced when Shazam shows up and assumes that he is one of Dr. Savannah's creations and tries to fight him and Shifu Pigsy, uh, giving 
Dr. Savannah still possessed the chance to try to eat Shazam. Uh, Monkey Prince and Shazam cannot stand each other. And then at the end of this, we see uh, Monkey Prince kind of powered down, going home to his parents who... And there are going to be spoilers past this point, right? So if you don't okay. want spoilers, skip forward. Going home to meet his parents, who are the two henchmen he just talked into leaving Dr. Savannah's for their own safety. And then going to school the next day and meeting up with his best friend, Billy Batson. Oh, shit. <laughs> okay. And like, the way Jin Yang writes Monkey Prince is great. But the way he writes Shazam is also super, super good. Like, as much as Gene Yang plays well into very Silver Age styles, having this book that that can lean a little bit on that kind of camp, but still be whatever it wants to be because it's new, is is really great. This is another story that ends with a, like, The Monkey King Will Return teaser. Very um, cool. Yeah. I'm sorry, The Monkey Prince. It says, Monkey The Prince. Adventures... Sure. The Adventures of the Monkey Prince continue later this year. It's fun. It's just fun, and I love it. But like I said, everything in this book is great. There are some really gorgeous pinups. Uh, there's a pair in particular that Kevin Wada and Jim Bartell did together that are just stunning. Um, cannot recommend it enough. Yeah, I will. I will probably read through this today, so I can't. Wait. Yeah, Future State Gotham number one. We have the main feature here, Hunt the Batman, Part 1, Batman's Land. Written by Joshua Williamson and Dennis Culver. Art by Giannis Milanogiannis. And letters by Troy Pateri. Uh, this whole book is in black and white. Yes. And absolutely gorgeous. Definitely. It has a really strong manga feel to it. You know what? I thought the exact same thing when I read this. And... You know, at first, because I don't, I don't know manga very well, so I had to ask myself the question: Am I, am I saying this because it's in black and white, or is this intentional? And I really think no. there are some style choices that are very intentional, very, very intentional. Like just the 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 panel layouts are very, very reminiscent of of manga, where you have like a, a big background scene, and then you have the 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 odd shaped panels that aren't like rectangular, right? Yeah. Laid over them where the, the gutters are still the background image. I also think yeah. there's a lot of use of white space that you don't see as much in Western comics. Correct. Especially in conjunction with very little cross hatching, which especially in black and white comics, you get a lot of if they're this, this sort of pin lined. Uh, and that's another thing. They're very pin lined. They're not yes. yeah, brush yeah. lined. Um, but you get a lot of speed lines to darken and to show texture. And I feel like speed lines read more to me as a tool in manga than a tool in Western and American comics specifically. I would not disagree. Um, I think the thing that reinforces the concept, this is very much inspired by manga, is what is reprinted in the back, which I, I'm not going to spend as much time on here because this is a reprint. But the the... Back up here is a reprint from an older Batman black and white series called The Third Mask by Katsuhiro Otomo, uh, translated by Joe Duffy with lettering by Bill, Bill Oakley. So they've chosen to reprint specifically a, a Batman, essentially manga story in 
the back of this. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I at least modern manga, the fr- the front story though feels much more like a modern. Yes. Manga. Yeah. Very definitely. Um. So this is. <laughs> Kind of picking up where we left off shortly after we left off. It feels like some time has passed. A little bit, a little bit. Um, And I want to note something that we have never heard explicitly before. The, the first caption boxes in this. The multiverse was once saved from the brink of destruction. Okay, we know that. The victory that shook the, a victory that shook the very fabric of time and space. And from the ashes rose an inevitable world of tomorrow. The idea that what we saw in Future State has to come to pass, I don't think has been explicitly said as much as we've seen, like, we've talked about this at length already. Like, we've seen teases, we've seen elements that are clearly happening, but that it is unavoidable is something we haven't actually seen in the text before. Uh, Then Red Hood fights, as you do, a giant mecha Scarface piloted by Arnold Wesker. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we've talked much about Scarface on here, because how often does he come up? But he is, like, weirdly, especially in terms of Batman the Animated Series, which is 95% of where I know him from, weirdly, like, a D-list villain who I love seeing show up. I, I don't know that I have ever been disappointed in any medium anywhere where Scarface has showed up. This, you know, that's very much reminding us just what what Red Hood's current status quo is. He's working with with the magistrate kind of as a contractor. Um, and then someone detonates a seismic bomb of some sort that essentially carves a giant bat into downtown Gotham. Uh, very obviously very much an allusion to No Man's Land, Batman's Land, the mm-hmm. title of this issue. And Jason ends up becoming deputized as a probationary magistrate member to take down the next Batman, to take down Jace, who is, according to the magistrate, all of the evidence proves that it's him, not that they ever show anyone this evidence. Um, So, like, it's not a status quo I expected in this book. Like, I knew it was going to be more about Jason and the magistrate, but I did not expect, like, Oh no, he's going to be hunting Jace, who has apparently blown up downtown Gotham. All I, all I can think of is Dr. Horrible. The status is not quo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then we, we get a tease of maybe some other Batman family members uh, on the last page. And I'm pretty sure in the far background that is Damien. Whoever it is has stolen Cloud Strife's sword from Final Fantasy VII, though. <laughs> the Busker Sword, great. Yep. Justice League Last Ride number one, written by Chip Zdarsky, art by Miguel Mendonca, colors by Enrica Angolini, and letters by And World Design. What has happened that Chip is so good at writing broken relationships? Oh my word, this is like heartbreaking. I. <laughs> I feel like it's gotta be, after Sex Criminals came out, Chip just got fed up with people asking him questions like, which two characters who you write for Marvel would fuck? Which, (laughs) I'm not kidding. Back before we had him on, I watched a lot of interviews with him to kind of get get a feel for what people were asking him and like what had been talked about and 
the number of questions like that, including literally that question. One of the videos I found asked that question, and he played it off like a champ, but boy, howdy, what a weird question. Yeah, please don't do that. <laughs> like, here, voice this opinion that could get you fired. Yeah. Um. Anyway, I feel like maybe there's a part of it that's like, you know what, I'm going to make it so they can never ask me about which characters will bone again. <laughs> uh this schism between Bruce and Clark, though, is I think what makes it so uh, work so well is it's something that's so easy to see actually happen. It is. It's I think it's a hard needle to thread mm -hmm. to make this work, because normally when we get a future where Bruce and Clark don't get along. It's because one of them has done something explicitly wrong. Yeah. Or or some tragic event, you know, Lois has died or whatever, right? And he blames well, yeah. the other person or whatever. Okay, Lois has died, I was very much reading as. And then Superman becomes an authoritarian dictator. Yes, That's exactly. the wrong part. That's the wrong part. Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> Um, dictators are bad, the more you know. But this doesn't go for that. Instead, it finds an event where the two would see just differently enough that, like, their friendship doesn't automatically solve the problem, or their respect for each other doesn't solve the problem. It Both of those things take a hit from what we learn has caused this fallout between them. And neither one of them can give that, like, the, they. I think they both feel like if they gave up on their point of view on this, it would not be who they are. Right. Yeah. Like, it's, 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 it's sort of the perfectly built Gordian knot for the two of them. Yes. Yeah. And everybody else is just kind of in, and hates seeing this. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's basically no league because of how much how much of an impasse the two of them are at. Right. And then the Green Lanterns show up with a prisoner that they need the Justice League to watch. And this is something else I actually really like about this story. This is, I mean, all the construction so far, even, even the Green Lanterns show up and need the Justice League to guard this prisoner, all feels pretty timeless, right? Like, this could work in sort of any version of the Justice League, you know, at least, let's say, from the 80s on. Sure. But we actually get a version of the space status quo that feels current and contemporary, even though this is not in continuity. Yeah, like, again, a natural extension of kind of what we're seeing happen in a way. Right. Yeah. So the Green Lanterns show up, and the reason they need the Justice League to watch is the Green Lanterns have been fragmented. They've been taken off the board. I don't know, as though a power battery exploded and. Uh, rendered most of the core powerless, and then maybe kind of got patched back together. But the United Planets have taken over peacekeeping in the galaxy, and Hal wants to sort of carve out authority for the Lanterns again. He wants to build a new Oa, essentially. And, like, we don't know that it's explicitly what we've seen happen in the current Green Lantern book. It's It's something that feels similar enough. Exactly, and that, and that's why I say you know it seems like a natural. It could be a result of 
so I like I like that it has that sort of currency to it, even though it doesn't need it. Correct. I also like that Hal, just the biggest dumbass sometimes, decides Earth's moon is the best place to run the Green Lanterns from. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, you know what? You know what? Uh, the the, the kind of twist to that that really in some way kind of surprised me, but like the more I thought about the more I thought, well, maybe it doesn't is Clark is 100% kind of behind it. And I think it comes completely from a place of, because there's no justice league, right? He's like, we need some sort of unified force that can keep earth safe. And, and cause it's mentioned several times throughout this book. I think he's just tired. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's trying to do it all on yeah. his own. He's yeah. trying to cover everything the League would globally. He's burnt out. This is a Superman who has burnout. Yes. And, like, um, everyone sees it, too, by the way. Yeah, like, Lois is explicit with him. And at one point, like, things I've never heard Lois Lane say before, for someone who values the truth, you sure do lie a lot. Yeah. Like, damn, Lois. You're right. But damn. Yeah. Um, it's almost like this Chip Zdarsky guy knows how to write a good book. I know, right? Also, uh, I just need to acknowledge who this prisoner that the League is charged with guarding is. <laughs> I have left this because just, oh, of all the people I expected to walk through the door, this was not, or be dragged through the door, this was not, this wasn't it. But I can't think of a better choice now. Your main man. The baddest bastitch in the whole damn town, lover of dolphins everywhere, Lobo. Oh, that, that, that so, why does that sound dirty when you say that? <laughs> I'm gonna say this. I don't think Lobo would actually love a dolphin in that way, Brian. I don't think so either, but I like, think the but... one chaste thing about Lobo is his Lisa Frank folder collection. Like, but it would fit in every other aspect of his character. Like, it's just, it, it it's like the one thing that, it, it's the exception that makes the rule, right? Yes. There you go. Uh, I, I love this. Uh, also, just as a side note, this was originally announced as, announced as digital first. It's coming out day and date, print and digital. That plan got tweaked. So, uh, yeah, if you're like, where are these digital chapters? They aren't. Right. Time before time, number one. Tell you what, this episode's a little heavy with me talking about things you didn't read, Brian. <laughs> that's all right. I did not uh, get to a lot of what I wanted to read this week, so that's okay. And this one, I was aware of, but very much was just going to like check it out later in trade. Um, and then everyone in the Discord for also Shardier's Patreon. Uh, was talking about it. I'm like, okay, fine. I'm going to go ahead and grab it. Uh, Elsa Shoretier told me to read it, so I did. Uh, this is written by Declan Shalvey and Rory McConville. Art is by Joe Palmer. Colors are by Chris O'Halloran. And letters are by Hassan Atzman This is set in the far-ish future. It's like the 2040s, I believe. It's main timeline. And is about a dude who works for a company whose job is space-time relocation so the very first family we see him relocate feels very much like witness protection he's setting them in 1987 for their own safety and protection they've had to pay their way to get there they haven't just been placed it's very much 
a capitalist organization. Uh, and we'll learn just how much so in a moment. And you get this great line, like, the kid's like, okay, cool, we're good. Hey, can you tell Can you tell me what the Wi-Fi password is, though? And he's like, oh, that's not going to be a thing for another 10 years. So you get this, like, really good mixture, I think, of serious beats and then comedy or at least subverted expectation we see him return to his timeline and we learn like okay the radiation shielding on his ship is bad so he's probably getting some kind of radiation poisoning but that's okay because he's almost paid off whatever he owes this company and can stop working for them except they've charged him back for like the natural wear and tear on the ship he'd been flying so now he's stuck working for them longer which leads him and his buddy to to figure out a way to hijack one of these spaceships and or time ships and disappear in time this does not go according to plan <laughs> i will i will i will yada yada over those details some cuz i actually do really think this book is worth checking out um it's it's fun the art is good i love chris o'halloran's colors in it uh you do get a twist near the end in which a random fbi agent shows up inexplicably and now you also get a mystery component added in as well uh yeah time before time really dig it definitely check it out might have already gone back for a second printing. I feel like I read that at some point. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised based on the reactions to it. Yeah, uh, definitely, definitely solid. Over at Marvel, we are in week two of Heroes Reborn, starting with Heroes Reborn number two. A A.K.A. Hyperion Week. <laughs> yes. Letters are by Corey Pettit. The main story, Invaders from the Negative Zone, is written by Jason Aaron, with pencils by Del Kion and Carlos Magno, inks by Scott Hanna and Carlos Magno, colors by Edgar Delgado. Uh, and then there's also a backup called Welcome Home, Soldier, written by Jason Aaron, with pencils by Ed McGinnis, inks by Mark Morales, and colors by Matthew Wilson. Uh, and yes, this is, this is the Hyperion issue. Yes. Uh, you know what? I really dug this. I did too. I I'm liking this so much more than I thought I would. <laughs> you commented last time on like the amalgam elements of this really falling into the villains. Yes. And I think that definitely holds true here. But oh, seeing yeah. seeing the kind of like lawful evil justice league versus these really weird versions of their villains well you know what else i realized it's not just an amalgam from because Mar- clearly the squadron supreme right is is the marvel justice league right yeah right very clearly i can equate a lot of these villains to also dc villains yeah yeah um and a lot of them, like, in Marvel are still sort of Marvel-Marvel amalgama- amalgamations, but yes. that kind of yeah. moves them into the DC line in a way. It's really clever. I think so, too. Um, the basic premise in this, this main story is that the Negative Zone, a la the Phantom Zone, has had this huge breakout after they threw Doctor Doom Juggernaut into it last issue. Doctor Juggerdoom, yes. And... Some of these characters who we actually a lot of the characters who we hear get out, we know there are one shots for coming up, which I like as kind of a tease. Yep. Uh, we'll talk about one of them in a minute, which is the Imperial Guard, 
holy tragedy, Batman. Oh man, no joke. And you know what's funny is going through these, like all of these, I very clearly picked the kind of the DC influence on on them. Uh huh. Except for this group, and I was like, oh, okay, well, whatever. And then obviously, I, I read the one shot after, and I was like, oh, well, now I know who they are. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, we get the uh, the imper- the brood Imperium, mm-hmm. which is very clearly, I mean, it's super super obvious. It's the Imperial Shire Guard, right? But they've been brooded. They have been brooded, and like I love structurally the way at least this issue and these one shots handle these characters, both with the Imperial Brood and with with Peter Parker. Mm-hmm. Where we see from Hyperion's point of view, Peter Parker, as this kind of very bumbling Jimmy Olsen-esque character. Yes. Who Hyperion's just sort of off-put by. And then we, we hear we hear him mention the brood very, like, matter-of-factly. And when we get into those one-shots, like, he has a whole history with the Imperial Guard, and we don't see that tragedy explicitly in Heroes Reborn 2, but it's incredibly tragic so going back and rereading that recontextualizes it yeah. in a totally different way yeah, it's literally and, just one page in in uh heroes are born and like between that and seeing him sort of like go take a nap in the sun and divorce himself from his questions about reality like there is it, it reinforces that idea that he like would avoid uncomfortable things at this point, that he would not confront potential new trauma head-on because he's never really processed his old trauma. Yeah. All right, Alex, I want to play a little bit of a game here. Okay. So I want to go through I want to go through the villains and see if you come to the same conclusions that I have. Okay. So we start with Mr. Beyonder. That is Mr. Spitlick. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously the Beyonder from... Right. From, yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely. The the flying sharks uh, were, were, were very nice. Um, yes. Let's see. Then we have, um, uh, let's see, what is his name? Uh, General Annihilus. I'm going to go with that's Zod. General from the Phantom Zone. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than, uh, um, yeah. I, I will I will go with that as well. With with Annihilus, right? Like it's it's I think going to be a pretty clear mix of both. Yeah, and th- then we have then we have the the new Ultron. This is the one I'm curious if you came up with the same one for me because it's obviously Ultron and and Pym. So it that's kind of your amalgamation from yeah yeah, which I actually like a lot because that's technically the current status quo for Pym, just yeah. to a greater extreme. Yeah, the only difference being that he has a Pym particle heart, and so he well, is a giant Ultron. And, like, the amount of Kirby crackle involved there does, and size, does make me think of kind of an anti-monitor almost. Oh, see, I, nope, I didn't go there. I went somewhere different. Where did you go? I went with Kimo. Okay, see, that's not a character I, I would have gone to, just because I think, I know Kimo by name. Yeah. But I definitely only rarely have and, read anything. And it very specifically says some, uh, one of the things it's describing is, except for the unstable size-altering chaos coursing through its veins. And it's got this big glowy, like, inside thing. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. It just you're, made me you're, you're probably more right than I am. I think I just whiff on, whiffed on that one a little. Yeah. And then we have our last one, which is 
Hulk. I love Hulk because Hulk has basically become Bizarro. Bizarro Hulk. I love it. Hulk Zaro. Hulk Zaro, yes. Um, which also just brutal. He's like, I have to blow his head off dozens of times before he stays dead at all. Uh, yeah, not like. And then we throw him into the negative zone anyway, just to be safe. Yes. Yeah, and that, then then he then he takes his nap in the sun. Yes. Yeah. Because the Hulk remembers. Yeah. No. Much like Pepperidge Farm, the Hulk remembers. The Hulk remembers. Yeah. So something about his status of uh, of his mental state and and the bizarroness of him allows him to remember that the Avengers and Captain America and all that are real. I mean, I'm assuming he remembers because of that whole "I die and come back to life" thing. Sure. Sure. And because he can't rectify that that creates the bizarro mental mental state but i think either direction you want to read that from works i think that's part of what makes this work in general though right because other than the very specific focused details we get from these one shots this event very much is seems to be at least structured as we're going to get a different point of view character every issue with a very broad view of this world. It's not about it's not about focus on detail. It's kind of about it's almost like a survey of this reality. I don't disagree with you. And I think that's I think that's to its strength, right? I think that's part of why it works so well. It it kind of always leaves you room to want a little more, but because it's relying so much on convention and trope and history and recognizable ideas remixed in new ways. If you have that history, you can recognize the shape of those things and what they might look like in this world and sort of fill in some of those blanks for yourself. Even though you and I might have done it in different ways on different things, I think both of, when we have done that, both of our options have been at least a little valid, right? Like yes. they're both fair reads of what we get on the page. Yep. All right. Then we have our backup story. Yes. Welcome home, soldier. Uh, which, if you could not guess by the creative team being the same as issue one, is going to be kind of our through line, I think, picking up from the first issue. Yeah, this is um, this is Blade reintroducing Cap. And, well, essentially, it's Cap meeting Hyperion to find out for himself kind of what's going on. Right. Yeah. And, like, props to Jason Aaron and... Uh, to the art team too, Ed McGinnis and Mark Morales for effectively like hiding Steve's identity enough where I could not until I got the reveal decide is this Steve or is this Thor. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, right? Because we did get the introduction of Thor kind of remembering. Yeah. At the and end. I was like, yeah. Which of these? T and it felt a little bit more like Steve the more he talked. Sure. But there was definitely just enough, I've been out of it, I just woke up, I just remembered kind of stuff in the dialogue. And I'm like, okay, this actually could be either of them, which way is this going? Right. Yeah, no, that was clever. Yeah. Uh, really, really, like, like you said, I, I was looking forward to this, but I have been surprised by how much I'm digging it. Me too. Let's talk about Hyperion and the Imperial Guard. Now, I'll be honest, this is the story that really got me. I agree. Um, so, let's talk structure for a moment. I don't think 
all of these one shots are going to do this, but this one has specifically imagined its stories as an issue from what would you say i guess early 90s late 80s uh it is early 90s and the reason we know that is because of the quote backup feature special preview in the back of it okay that's what i thought it was like 1992 92 yeah because star jammers number one is going to be in 1992 yeah yeah so our main feature is credited as issue number 121 of hyperion and the imperial guard with, as Brian just mentioned, a special preview of Star Jammers number one that's, what, about eight pages? Yeah, that's about right. Um, that that sort of sets up, and we'll talk about that in a minute, because I, I this is a good example of being able to imagine a little bit of what comes next. Uh, but let's talk about that 121, Coda. Ooh, this so- is r- written by Ryan Cady. Pencils are by Michelle Bandini. Inks are by Elisabetta de Amico and, Mich- and Michelle Bandini. Colors are by Eric Arseniega, and letters are by Corey Pettit. So this is Hyperion uh, in an earlier age. He's much, much younger, and he is part of the Imperial Guard. And you remember earlier when I said I didn't know what DC analog this kind of pulled from, from that Uh one shot? It's very clear in this issue. Do you not agree? The Omega Men? Oh, no. Oh. I read it as Legion of Superheroes. Actually, that works too. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I can see that. Especially as a young Hyperion going to be part of this team that he then has to leave and go back to Earth. And yeah, yeah, that does make a lot of sense. Yeah, and you know, ha- has a romance has romantic feelings for one of them. That yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't thinking time travel. Well, because it's but not time right. travel in this, but yes. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I absolutely see it now that you say it. And some of those costume designs, like... Yeah, that too. Very, very Legion. Yeah, that too. Um, Yeah, but it is Hyperion. It's almost like, much like John, right? Doing a, a, a stint with the Imperial Guard in order to learn and grow and mature in his powers in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, like, we see the sort of friendships and romantic relationships that he develops. Like, it feels close-knit. This is his last day with them. Yes. Uh, And it just, it it becomes so tragic. So tragic. Especially having read Heroes Reborn number two first. Right. The minute one of them is bitten by a bug. Yes. Oh, fuck. You're like, oh, this crap now i'm it's one of those avalanche of instant knowledge that's just oh yeah and that's if you haven't already when you saw the imperial brood in hyperion or in heroes reborn number two if you haven't already said oh no i know what this one shot's going to be (laughs) yeah um yeah because essentially i mean the, the the details aren't important other than the fact of on this last day they go to do something uh, to kind of wrap up some lingering issue, you know, issue, and in the process, um, the only way to stop the brood from escaping and taking over the entire universe is for the rest of the Imperial Guard to sacrifice themselves while Hyperion closes them away. Yeah, yeah, ah, uh-huh. In- including, including this new love that he has found who has just said that she will basically sacrifice 
you know, she wants to be with him enough that she will, you know, give up her position in the guard and go to earth with him. Yeah. Eeks. Heartbreaking. It's gorgeous and it's so well written and such a bummer. Yeah, it is. It is. And, Which uh, is... And, oh, sorry, go ahead. and by the way, they found out that the, here's the tie in, right? They found out the location of this place that they had been looking for from the star jammers. Yes. Yes. Or should I say uh, the, the, the guardians of the star jammers? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. The star jammers. I love this backup for two reasons. One, it's just phenomenal. It's just fun. But two, like, I think it's really clever to frame it as a preview, but I really appreciated having this lighter story. After that, yes. Yes. Like, it's a good change of tone to sort of come back from from a really intense, tragic story beforehand. Also, I'm going to go ahead and call it now. I feel like if there is one one story in this that I am going to wish in two months that I had more of... It's probably going to be Star Jammers. It might well be. Because, by the way, very, very possibly, we now have a new best version of Scott Summers. Uh, yes. So, this imagines a version of the Summers family in which not only were the Summers parents kidnapped to space, mm-hmm. but where specifically Christopher Summers, Scott Summers, and Alex Summers were kidnapped to space. We don't really find out what has happened to their mother, if she was kidnapped too, or is dead. I know, like, at this time in comics, or at least on X-Men the Animated Series, Christopher Corsair thought she was dead, and then eventually she turns out to be alive again later in the comics somewhere else. Uh, This doesn't get into that. He is instead now married to... Hepzibah, mm-hmm. and the other crew members on their ship who have to play trainer and babysitter to Scott and Alec are Rocket and Groot. Yes! Yes! I would read an ongoing of this setup perpetually. Like, the idea of young Scott and Alex in space doing pirate stuff with their dad and Rocket and Groot Yes. Give me more. Well, and what I love is it, we get that traditional preview thing, right? Of every time a new character shows up in a panel, right? There's an editorial thing of, oh, this is Scott Summers, and he fires force bolts from his eyes, pure force bolts from his eyes. And this yeah. is Hepzibah, and she's a feral, you know, this, that, and the other. And, uh, you know, Rocket is this, and Groot is this. And, the, and then we get to Major Christopher. By the way, this is my quote of the week. It's just this editorial box right here. Brian's quote of the week. Major Christopher Corsair Summers, test pilot turned space pirate, galaxy's most wanted. No extra human heritage or abilities. He's just that good. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And uh, we meet a Nova Corps member. We, We do. This was a little shock, but I loved it. It makes so much sense. Like, if the Fantastic Four never became the Fantastic Four... And you still have that kind of, like, daring hothead Johnny. He would absolutely be a Nova character. Yeah, Johnny Storm is a Nova Corps member. Yes. Yeah, um, which, if you take Nova Corps as kind of Green Lantern Corps, and who's your most Hal Jordan character in the Marvel Universe? Johnny Storm. Yeah. Yeah. No, no fear. Takes the big risk. Yeah. And the the kind of end of the preview, the hook for this ongoing series that never will be. 
is Lalandra showing up. Don't, on don't the say ship. that. Don't say this will never be. But hopefully we get as its own universe. Yes, there we go. Uh, Lalandra shows up on the ship and talks about taking down her brother Dakin, and like immediately, like immediately, can't you imagine? As soon as she mentions the Phoenix Force, still getting some version of Scott and Jean in this reality, but totally different. Yes. Like, this is one of those things where I'm like, we don't need, we don't actually need to see any more of this to have some sense of how it plays out. Right. Like, Don't like worry. all, all so of the threads of, of what you would, what you would then weave into something are here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You don't have to see the completed tapestry to know from all of the, the parts that are here, what it's going to be. Like really, really, really do the math here. And you eventually get to, uh, Elijah the Scroll is Madeline Price. Oh, God. Madeline Pryor. Pryor, yeah. Yes, yeah. Who, like, ha, who, you can carry this out that far. Who Alex is in love with, sure. Why not? <laughs> yeah. But it becomes a triangle with Johnny. <laughs> what do we have to do to pitch this to Marvel, Alex? <laughs> nothing, nothing. I don't, I don't think that's the answer here. I think we make sure Ryan, Katie, Stephen Byrne, and Corey Pettit pitch this to Marvel. I'm not saying we should write it. I'm just saying, you know. <laughs> then we have Heroes Reborn, Peter Parker, the Amazing Shutterbug. Wow, this was another downer. Yeah. Uh, written by Mark Bernadine, art by Ron Lim and Scott Hanna, and Raphael De La Torre. Colors by Jim Campbell. Letters by Ariana Marr. So I was 100% not expecting Peter Parker to like get superpower. Like that's kind of this whole heroes reborn thing, right? Is that our heroes don't get powers. Yeah. Well, superpowers is probably an oversell in, in what happens with Peter. That's what I'm saying. I, well, but you understand what I'm like, I, what I'm saying is no, I did not expect him to get superpowers and he kind of doesn't. He he mostly does. He mostly like, doesn't. From, from what we know in Heroes Reborn number two, he he it does not stick. But I was not expecting him to make the choice that he did in that end to be that way. Yeah, like this is one of those sort of most different, most similar cases. Yeah, yeah. The big changes here are Peter doesn't get bitten because of Flash's bullying. Peter kind of goes on and perseveres and lives his life, and he's doing well until Aunt May is killed by Hyperion's fallout. Yes. And then he becomes more withdrawn, and eventually Uncle Ben talks him out of that with a version of the, with great power there must also come great responsibility that boils down to, you don't need power to do good. Right, you can affect change without having superpowers. Uh and that's, I mean, it's still Uncle Ben's voice that leads him to do this thing. And it's a very different version of, of Peter, but still Peter, uh, who eventually gets bitten by an Annihilus bug and turns into a giant spider monster and throws himself off a building. To prevent but, him from, uh, you know, attacking, killing everybody else. Yeah. But we learn in heroes reborn number two that he does survive and transform back he just breaks all eight legs because he has terrible luck <laughs> the old parker luck the old parker luck oh yeah this was this was this was kind of tragic yeah which is just par for the course for spidey sometimes sure everybody yeah I, i'll be honest i'm shocked that nobody else died because <laughs> Honestly, yeah. Although it seems like he never even met Gwen Stacy. He knows MJ. Yeah, he knows MJ because they were neighbors, right? But he, yeah, yeah he never, 
he never it appears, never met Gwen. We we do meet a character in this who like feels like she's gonna show back up somewhere else and be important though. Yes. Agreed. Um Carolyn Trainer. Yes, who's like asking him before Aunt May dies, asks him like, Oh, could you use your drones to get footage of Hyperion? And maybe maybe it's like in that that uh future state dark detective where there was indeed a character number one who we were both convinced would be important and then never showed up a second fucking time. Yeah, could be. Could be. Maybe it's another one of those, but like she feels like she should be important, even if it's just the okay if this series actually went on. She would be important to Peter, maybe. Right, right. Yeah. Over to X Men. Ah, Arthur Cohen section. Yes, yes. Children of the Atom, number three, written by Vita Ayala, art by Paco Medina, colors by David Curiel, and letters by Travis Lanham, with design by Tom Muller. We focus on gimmick in this issue. Yeah, which I'm super happy about. Uh, yeah, she is probably my favorite character. I think she, also, yeah, I think she is mine. Also, like, boy, howdy. Uh, I did not expect to learn, oh yeah, the character who I'm pretty sure I like the most has some serious work-life balance. Oh, I need to make sure everybody likes me by proving myself useful to them. That uh, felt a little bit like a call-out of high school, Alex. <laughs> uh, it is a, I think it, and I think one of the things that I like so much about this character is exactly that is the, the fears and the anxieties that she has are so, so normal to, I think a lot of comic book readers. I'll say, I'll put it yes. that way. Uh, we also get some flashbacks in this issue to the five of them stuck on a spaceship that's being blown up. Yeah, and clearly it's, or at least it seems like probably don't have any of their powers yet. I'm assuming this is how they got them, right? Like, yeah. Are they, should they have actually been a Fantastic Four themed super team? Yeah, I, I, yeah, did, I, I did, didn't know. Did they get their branding wrong? <laughs> <laughs> did they get their branding wrong? Did someone not do the right market research on this team? <laughs> Uh, I, I continue to love this book. I, um, but what really concerns me is how this ends with Carmen. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what's happening there. I mean, she is starting to physically transform and racked with pain. Right. Uh, we also see the rest of the team go visit their friend who had just shown back, shown back up after school at being sick and, Learned that the way he got better was through basically mutant gene therapy. Which just sounds like so many bad ideas. Yeah, uh, this is introducing a new terrifying wrinkle to the current X-Men status quo. There is a company out there uh, under the guise of living harmoniously together, basically like splicing mutant genes into human DNA. There's no way that goes badly. I was going to say, yeah, doesn't that sound like the best idea ever? Also, the the company owner is just like the most evil. Immediately when you see him, he's like the most evil character on the page. Well, okay, and the company name is Real Unity. Like, it's not any villain organization name. <laughs> like, I've never read comics before, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah um more red flags than soylent as the name of a company in the real yes, world yes yes love it love it very much me too god this book is so good 
Then we have X Factor number nine, written by Leah Williams, art by David Baldeon, colors by Israel Silva, letters by Joe Caramagna, and designed by Tom Muller. AKA I've Distraction been... Rave. <laughs> um, well, I mean, okay, fine. If we're gonna go there, I'm going to read into the record the name of this the oh title my God. of this issue. By the way, I like I was I, I seriously debated just making the title of this issue my quote of the week. Interlude. DJ Mark's mixtape of Mojoverse beats to make out to. <laughs> it's beautiful. So I've I've really been enjoying X Factor, but this issue is operating at an entire other level from this series so far. Kind of literally. <laughs> I mean, everything. I might like say two art, or three different levels. Yeah. <laughs> the art in this issue is absolutely incredible. I mean, we get those literal levels like inside of sirens and then the morgans uh chrono skimming histories yes and the real world and the mojoverse dance rave hot beats to make out to which is a purely a distraction for them to rescue shatterstar yes yeah but like any good distraction involves a musical break featuring dazzler uh like who is lila cheney uh, we've got Mark Shepard, a.k.a. DJ, mm-hmm. Lila Cheney, a.k.a. Lila Cheney, mm-hmm. Sophia Montega, a.k.a. Wind Dancer, Noriko Ashika, a.k.a. Surge, and Allison Blair, a.k.a. Dazzler, as the lead vocalist. Yes. Oh, this is beautiful in, in, in every possible way. And then as if all of this was not enough to make me love this issue, then we get magic being her most magic and threatening the ever-loving hell <laughs> out of uh, Mojo. Yes. Ugh. Also, uh, just, if Israel Silva does not get a Best Colorist Eisner nomination yes. or whatever, Holy just shit. for this issue, yeah. like, this issue alone justifies it. Yeah, just the, the colors at the concert and the lights and the shading and the uh, everything is gorgeous. Um. And this is this is tying up basically all the loose ends from this series because we only get one more issue. Right, which I'm so sad about, but okay. Well, I will I will give you some good news, Brian. Yeah. Um they have announced a a mini series that will be spinning out of the Hellfire Gala stuff called The Trial of Magneto. That's basically going to feature the X Factor cast. Okay. Like investigating a murder. I, I was going to say that, but to me, the appeal of this was this particular group, which is such an odd group, but somehow works so well together. I actually just double checked this, and it is Leah Williams writing. It's a different creative team. Okay. Uh, Lucas Warnock is the artist. I don't have a colorist or letterer named here. I'm going to go out on a limb and say designed by Tom Muller. But it is still following the X-Factor team. So if you've been enjoying X-Factor, you'll definitely want to pick up The Trial of Magneto. Yeah. Fantastic issue. I I love everything about it. And finally, X-Corp number one. Written by Teeny Howard, art by Alberto Foce, colors by Sonny Go, letters by Clayton Cowles, and designed by Tom Muller. 
I think I understand a little better now what this book is. I mean, certainly better than one before I read it, yes. But Monet is playing her hand very close to her vest. Right? And I love it. Like, things we learn in this book. They are getting ready to publicly expand what X-Corp does. Mm -hmm. Charles Xavier has no real control, but by virtue of being Charles Xavier can kind of encourage there's uh, definitely some influence there right yeah he, yeah he he can influence what they do how they roll out to a degree monet clearly is looking for any excuse to do things her own way okay you know what uh, if we want to compare it to the uh the the x books in general right then you know xavier is uh he, he, even if he's not writing a book directly, right? He like has some input on where that book needs to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you you just somehow made Xavier a metaphor for Jonathan Hickman. Yeah, I did absolutely. <laughs> um, which you know, actually, the more I think about it, the more it works. Anyway, <laughs> Monet and. Warren Worthington are your your two CXOs, the leaders of X Corp. And I did not even catch this until Monet pointed it out at the end, but like she keeps losing control and transforming, and I forget that like that's also a thing Angel has to deal with. Yes. Because honestly, I think in my head I'm still used to that whole uh uh all new X-Men status quo where you had young Warren pre-Archangel. Right. And then current day Warren was stuck as Archangel. Um don't think I'd entirely resolved in my head that they're the same character again and and do do the Jekyll Hyde thing. Yeah, one of the things I like is how they have paired these two, Warren and, and Monet together. She is very clearly like the ruthless business side of this. And he is, although also, you know, a CEO and, and known in business, he is more like the wheeling, dealing, go out and meet the people face side of it. Uh, I, I I just kind of like this dynamic together because she very clearly thinks that she has better ideas when it comes to what should be done. Right. Yeah. And she, she definitely feels less patient than he does. Yes. Well, and, and that fits with that whole, you know, what that role is, right? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, let's talk about the Madrixes. <laughs> How is it that I love Jamie Madrix so much when I used to not, for that character i don't know i don't know what like what magic has made him suddenly just amazing but it's not just me is it no okay. like everything since matthew rosenberg wrote that miniseries has been great yeah uh and this he is single-handedly which of course means him and a bunch of his own dupes who he uh reabsorbs once a week to gain their knowledge right are running a uh, Savage Land research garden outpost slash pharmaceutical generate you know plant of yeah. the, and producing the drug right. But he's very much focused on research yeah, himself. Correct. Yeah, yeah, he, that's mostly where it's at. Yeah, and uh, Monet wants him to join the board because they need to expand the board before this rollout. And like he's so assertive in a way that I'm not used to seeing him be. Yes. He is very protective of his dupes and like very scientifically minded. And no, 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 please don't hit the dupes. I don't want any unplanned, un 
recorded dupes running around my lab. Right. And he gets very angry, like, when Monet's like, okay, well, we can replace everything in the lab. Like, no, I haven't reabsorbed them in five days. I don't even know what knowledge I have missed out on by their being blown up. Right. Like, they have learned stuff that now I don't even know what it is they learned. It's such a very specific take on him, and I love it. I do, too. Uh, um, we also get more Trinary in this, and any time Trinary shows up, it makes me happy. Uh, me as well. And then we find out that their new headquarters is um is Mini Krakoa Shield Helicarrier. Yes. Right? Yes. Like, how cool is that? <laughs> I like it. It also kind of reinforces that, oh no, they're definitely going to space thing. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's like, if they can make a whole island helicarrier... They can definitely get some flying pirate ships going. Well, right, and I think I think one hundred percent the idea is one of the expansions that X Corps is going to be doing is not just terrestrial, right? Yeah, yeah. So good. I I I keep waiting, Brian, for the X Men book that's like, well, this doesn't work for me, and I don't. I don't know that that's going to happen. Like, not because I want it to happen. Don't get me wrong. It's just law of large numbers. Right. I feel like eventually there has to be one. Not that I expected it to be this, because I fucking love Teeny Howard. But. I I don't think there's ever been a time when there's been certainly not this many different mutant books that, like, at least one of them has not been good or not appealed to me. Like, Brian, if you had to ballpark it, because I know this because I just went through and updated the document I keep that's the reading order, which is how I'm actually boxing all of these books. Uh-huh. If you had to ballpark, how many issues of X-Men books do you think have come out since House of X number one? Oh, good God. Um, I'm going to go with... I'm going to go with 200. You are dead on, Brian. We are right around the 200 mark. Are we? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and the, and the, literally the only reason I do that though is I think of every single series has probably been fifteen to twenty ish issues, and we've had like like nine or ten series. Yeah, yeah. No, I I was a little dumbfounded when I was like, we are almost two. We are right around two hundred issues. We might be slightly over actually with yeah. this week's issues. Two hundred books into this. And we've already been going in Reign of X for about half of the issue count of Dawn of X. Oh my word. Now that shocks me. And I think that's because we are seeing more new series pop up, and that does make that count run faster. Right. But yeah, we're at what would be about the halfway mark. Well, and if, if they're the same length. Yeah, I do think it's 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 interesting to note. That's one of the things that they're not afraid to do with this, and I think Overall, it definitely works as much as like, like we just talked about with X Factor, right? As much as I love that book, I love that cast and everything. They're not afraid to tell the story that they have and then let that series go. Yeah. We're seeing the same thing with Hellions. I think it's going to go. Yeah. And I think like all of these feel like they lead to other things. Uh, Fallen Angels led to Hellions. Hellions will absolutely lead if it does go away like it will very clearly lead into something that deals with, if not immediately, ultimately, that deals with the the sort of hybrid clones who we saw in House of X and Powers of Ten. Yep. Like, 
all of it feels intentional, even when threads do sort of wrap up or move on to other other series. Well, and uh, that's exactly where I was going. Is even though they're not afraid to let that happen, it's not like it's not like the stories that were brought up in those end because yeah, they're constantly spawning other new things that incorporate and and change those. Yeah. Yeah. Is it still good? Arrow Psyche number three. Uh, this school could definitely use a guidance counselor or something, anyone to help with mental health, because holy fuck is this place a nightmare. Seven Secrets number eight. We and the world learn the first secret, and that's a bad thing. That's a really bad thing, apparently. The Dreaming Waking Hours number ten. We meet the new ruler of the fairy folk, and, uh, she is in over her head. The Joker, number three, Brian. Um, uh, Jim mistimes his timeline just a little bit. The next Batman, Second Son, chapter 11. Jace has a heart-to-heart with his mentor, Katana. Batman, the detective, number two. Brian. Yeah, um... Squire is still the best, and I think we now know where Batman learned the secret of Lollipop. <laughs> secret of the power of Lollipop. Rorschach, number eight. Uh, <laughs> as a quick aside, this issue is incredible. I really loved it. It was late in the day when I opened this, and I immediately flipped to the second and third pages and closed the book and said, I'm done reading comics for today because this layout is... Too much without more coffee in my system than I should consume right now. Uh, This issue is laid out in three parallel timelines, set at different points in time relative to each other, getting three different accounts of events at this ranch in New Mexico. Oh my, yeah, I'm looking at it right now. This this red, green, blue timeline thing. It is a masterclass in storytelling. But make sure you have consumed your coffee or whatever <laughs> before you read this one. Fair enough. Uh, Superman number 31. Uh, John learns that sometimes uh, you need to be more careful who you trust. Wonder Woman number 772. Brian. Uh, Wonder Woman... Uh, finally gets to go where she's been headed and we find out who her mysterious benefactor and and mentor has been. Ice Cream Man, number 24. If you are a person who is grossed out by dental stuff and just had dental work done, mm, what a hard read. Also, this issue is a reminder that all of us are fleshy meat sacks that will decay and rot away. The Silver Coin, number two. Sometimes you prepare for the... Uh, 80s camp serial killer, but you never really prepare to become that. Fantastic Four, number 32. We have our main story, Bride of Doom, part one, Rules of Engagement, in which Johnny Storm makes a series of huge mistakes, and then Doom gets engaged. Uh, We also have a backup here, which features... A a sword fight and simultaneous chess match between Doom and Reed Richards uh, for a particular boon uh, owed by the loser to the winner. 
And I just need to shout out for this issue one of the greatest comic book credits I've ever seen listed. Chess consultant, Zach Rivkin. <laughs> Absolutely necessary. So glad that they hired and credited a chess consultant. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Giant size, amazing Spider-Man, King's Ransom. This is the end of the King's Ransom storyline. Uh, Spider-Man declares Fred a real hero. And much like Jonathan Kent, maybe should be more careful about who he trusts. Guardians of the Galaxy number 14. Uh, Doctor Doom steals Teddy's body then gets stuck in Rocket Raccoon's body, and then gets conscripted into the Guardians to fight the evil space god that has been summoned and transformed Ego, the living planet, into some kind of egg. Uh, okay. Lest you think Al Ewing is getting less weird, this book exists. Silk number three. Brian. Um... Turns out maybe you should make sure your your henchman cat demon doesn't suffer a bigger batter demon. Spider-Man, Spider's Shadow number two. Now with five, this series is getting an extra issue. As it turns out, Spider-Man is indeed a menace, which Wilson Fisk learns all too well, leaving only J. Jonah Jameson. To coordinate an effort to stop him. And finally, heavy number six. Uh, be careful what you wish for, especially when heaven is uh, a lie, because you just might get it. And then you just might set up an afterlife love triangle. This week's books, we have Wonder Girl number one. Yes. Written and drawn by Joelle Jones, with colors by Jordi Belair and letters by Clayton Cowles. I have just been waiting for this book ever since Future State Wonder Woman. Yeah, this is one of the big ones I've been waiting for. Yara Floor is so fucking good. I cannot wait. Yeah, yes. The Mini Deaths of Lila Star, number two. Um, I'm written a... by Ram V, art by Philippe Andrade, colors by Anessa Morrow, and letters by Endworld Design. Yeah, I just had to bring this up just because so one, number one was so darn good and... uh uh, this one takes a quick time jump, I think, and uh, is going to let us see her meet the person that she has come to do away with. We have Fantastic Four Life Story, number one of six, written by Mark Russell, art by Shauna Zaxa, colors by Nolan Woodard, and letters by Joe Caramagna. Uh, if you remember Spider-Man Life Story, this is the same concept, but for Fantastic Four. We are getting a sort of combined history with real-world timeline uh, showing the Fantastic Four over real-time. Finally, we have Shang-Chi number one, written by Jean Lun Yang, art by D.K. Ruan, colors by Triona Farrell, and letters by Travis Lanham. This is continuing this creative team's time with Shang-Chi after the six-issue miniseries they had previously worked together on, uh, and this picks up where that left off for Shang-Chi. Only now he has to navigate uh, the Avengers not being... the Avengers being suspicious of his motivations, running his father's former organization, uh, and it really grounds him more in sort of what's going on in 
Marvel continuity at large. Uh, as a quick editorial note, Brian's computer decided to uh, just stop a moment ago. So uh, he has texted me and told me to wrap up this one because it has stopped now twice in recording this episode. So uh, I am going to handle wrapping up on my own. First by thanking Chase Parker for our intro voiceover. Panelology is a member of the Certain POV Network. If you're looking for other cool podcasts about popular culture, go to certainpov.com. You can visit us at panelologypodcast.com, support us at patreon.com slash panelology, get merch at bit.ly slash panelologymerch, capital P, capital M, or send us your questions, comments, or whatever at bit.ly slash panelologymailbag, capital P, capital M. My name is Alex, and Brian's is Brian, and were he here, he would tell you, go read comics. POV. Certainpov.com.